This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to our 23rd annual Writers' Symposium by the Sea at Point Loma Nazarene University. I'm Dean Nelson. I'm the journalism faculty at the university. And tonight we have Deepak Chopra, who has written more than 80 books, 22 of them New York Times bestsellers, both in fiction and nonfiction. He's the co-founder and chairman of the board of the Chopra Center for Wellbeing in Carlsbad and the founder of the Chopra Foundation. Time Magazine has described Deepak Chopra as one of the top 100 heroes and icons of the century and credits him as the poet-prophet of alternative medicine. The World Post and the Huffington Post Global Internet Survey ranked him one of the most influential thinkers in the world and specifically in medicine. Ladies and gentlemen, we're here to celebrate Deepak's latest book, The Healing Self. Welcome, Deepak Chopra. Thank you. Thank you. So the, the popular notion about life and health is that it's all a gamble. The odds are stacked against you. It just seems like you get sick, you know, it just happens. That's, that's just sort of life. Um, some get sick, some thrive, but your book challenges that notion. Your book says, no, it's, it's not necessarily a gamble. Is that correct? Is that a correct that's reading? That's correct. I think our understanding of health and well-being has gone through several stages, evolution in the last 40 years, at least in Western science. So first was establishing the mind-body connection. Now we know that actually even the word mind-body connection is not correct. Mind and body are inseparably one, just like space and time are inseparably one, or mass and energy are inseparably one, or wave and particle. So mind and body are one. The mind is not just in the brain. It just happens to speak in English with an Indian accent in the brain. Okay, the mind is all pervasive. The second incarnation of or evolution of that was what we call integrative medicine. It's not just mind-body, it's lifestyle, basically. Uh, And lifestyle includes everything, how we treat each other, how we speak to each other, how we relate to each other. Uh, our emotions, but also the quality of our sleep and all the things, the six pillars of well-being that uh, I talk about in the book, but also extensively in detail elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Sleep, meditation, stress management, emotions, nourishment, movement, yoga, pranayam, and grounding as very essential and how our microbiome, genome, brain, and immune system and and endocrine system are part of what we would call the healing uh, self. Um, And then the third evolution of that is um, addressing the whole mystery of consciousness because, you know, how do we know what we know? You know, uh, is matter the ontological primitive of the universe or is... Consciousness, awareness, the ontological primitive. We're still exploring that. That's called the hard problem of consciousness. Yeah, but, but, but Ill- let's just talk about illness for a second. Well, because the, the fear of death is also an illness. Well, that's, yeah, okay. 
But, it, but you're saying that I, if, if I get sick, I have a role to play in how I get well. It's not just the drugs that I take or, or whatever. You, you're, you're saying I, I have a role in um, affecting my own immune system and in, in my own wellness in, in the who, middle of that, Who right? do you mean when you use the word I? Oh, here we go. <laughs> I... It's a little early for you to pull that one no, out, isn't it? No, it's not, because I is awareness. And the more aware you are, the more healthy you will be. The more aware you are of your choices, the more aware you are of your experiences, because what you call a biological organism, our biological organism, is the metabolism of experience in awareness. So you are a participant, whether you are sick or you're healthy, you're a participant. As we evolve in our understanding, the future of well-being, it's personalized, it's predictable, it's preventable, it's participatory, and it's process-oriented. And the sooner we recognize that, the sooner we'll take responsibility for our well-being. So... So how do I know, though, that what you just said, I'm not just playing some sort of a psychological trick on myself. You know, I'm not just convincing myself of all of these things. Everything you're, you're is saying measurable. this is real. If everything is measurable, if I just told you that uh, your retirement account um, uh, is gone, Bernie Madoff ran off with it, okay? <laughs> In this one second, your blood pressure will go up, your platelets will get jittery and sticky, your body will get inflamed, inflammatory markers will go up, adrenaline will go up, cortisol will go up, immune system will start to shut down. And then two seconds later, I tell you, it was a joke. <laughs> You're back to normal. Okay, so every shift in consciousness and experience in consciousness and interpretation in consciousness, which also influences how we think, how we feel, how we behave, how we speak, how we treat each other, all that influences our biology. So, you know, the old, the old phrase, the power of positive thinking, it's, it's, was there some truth to that? Some truth. It's too, but you're saying it, there's more than that. Yeah, it's too naive. Positive thinking, you know, there are people who are exasperatingly positive. You know? <laughs> and <laughs> they, they, they're making a mood of it. So, you know, uh, positive thinking can be very stressful. Um, uh, it's more important to have a quiet mind than a positive mind. Um, when your mind is quiet, your body is quiet. A reflective mind, a quiet mind, an alert mind, then your body will be also reflecting those activities of the mind. Um, no, I don't believe in positive thinking. All right, all right. So, okay, okay so... So many years ago, I had a friend who, uh, when I, I saw her after I hadn't seen her for a while, and she, you know, you could tell that she was having a real sinus problem. She was sneezing, all of this stuff. And I, with her anyway, I made the mistake of saying, wow, it sounds like you have a really bad cold. And it was like I had shot her or something. She said, don't say that. She said, I, I can't say that I have a cold. I have to say, I can only say that I have symptoms 
of a cold because she was in, in kind of this spot where if she, if she uttered that she had a cold, then that was an admission of something. Are, what what, that, what would, would you say to I her? I would call that denial. <laughs> but she had a cold, but you understand what she was doing in her yeah, head? Yeah, she was just kind of trying to bamboozle herself into a mood and an idea, and that's not reality. Reality is to, to be aware. That's all. And then everything happens spontaneously. That's the highest intelligence. Do uh, not be a biological robot that's constantly being triggered by people and circumstance into predictable outcomes, which unfortunately is the vast majority of humanity. We are under the hypnosis of social conditioning, and you all have to do is go to Starbucks and listen to the conversation. And, you know, you could go to the next Starbucks or another restaurant, you'll hear the same conversation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, nobody is... So, so the best thing I could do for myself, if I have a cold, is to say, I am aware that I have a cold. Best thing you can do for yourself is minimize your risk of getting a cold. <laughs> Sleep That's well. not helpful if I've got a cold. No, but I don't remember the last time I had a cold. Oh, boy. Now, now you're making me jealous, no, which is way, a whole different the, the emotion. The first sign of a compromised immune system is a cold. First sign. People who don't sleep well, mm-hmm. they get colds. People who are stressed, they get colds. People who have disruption in their circadian rhythms have colds. People who have a messed up microbiome, they have colds. Hmm. And cold is the first sign that um, your immune system is compromised. So I don't underestimate uh, this thing that we call a cold, a viral okay. infection. Okay. I, I, there's a great line and uh, several great uh, sentences, uh, pages in your book, but one line I underlined almost right away early on is this sentence from The Healing Self. You now have an opportunity to evolve consciously. How, how, can, we evo- how can we be aware or consciously evolve? What does that even mean? Evolution in the Western world refers mostly to what is called biological evolution. And Darwinian evolution is based on what we call random mutations and natural selection. By the way, I have a problem with that. Random just means you don't know what caused it. Now we know a lot of mutations are actually environmental, even disease-related mutations. And Mutations are unpredictable, but not necessarily random. There's always Hmm. an underlying factor. Nevertheless, we're talking about biological evolution, mostly when we speak about evolution in the Western world. Mm -hmm. In um, Eastern wisdom traditions, evolution, at least human evolution, is the evolution of consciousness and ultimately the evolution of the consciousness of consciousness. So... First step is go beyond being a biological robot, go beyond being reactive, find your center of being and respond creatively and consciously to situations, circumstances, events and people 
override what people call stress. Because stress is not there in the world. Stress is not in you. Stress is your interaction and your interpretation of threat. There's always a creative solution to problems. So even if you stop and take a few deep breaths and smile and uh, consciously respond to a situation, instead of, you know, uh, somebody blows the horn at you in the traffic jam and you blow back the horn or you show them the finger, you could be tuning into Mozart. Okay, now that's a creative response right there. Okay. But beyond being centered and, and, and conscious, there's intuition, there's creativity, there's higher vision, there's the experience of what we call transcendence, which is part of the religious experience in every tradition. Beyond that, even in the, at least in the Eastern traditions, there's something called cosmic consciousness, which mm-hmm. is being local and non-local at the same time, or which in Christian theology is called the immanent and the transcendent. And then there's divine consciousness, which is seeing the same awareness in you that is present in me, in fact, everywhere. And then unity consciousness, which going beyond all separation and having the experience of oneness with all that exists, because separation is a perceptual artifact. It's not reality. And in fact, in a way, science has taken us away from that's the fall of grace, which has given us beautiful technology, divine and diabolical. But the fall from grace is looking at the world as me and everything else, whereas this is an activity of the whole. So evolution of consciousness is our next step from human to meta-human, and our biology, I guarantee you, will follow that because okay. biology is different in different states of consciousness. Okay. I, I, I love the fact that you were influenced early on by the novel Aerosmith by Sinclair Lewis. There's a doctor character who's full of moral dilemmas, and he's trying to exterminate a plague in that book. What plague are you trying to exterminate now? The plague of separation. The plague that of has... Of me and not me? Is that what you're trying yeah, to exterminate? Yeah, me and the other, which has caused everything from social and economic injustice, climate change, an unsustainable planet, war, terrorism... Uh, that plague needs to be healed so we can live in a more peaceful, just, sustainable, healthier, and joyful planet, which is not only our privilege, but it's our duty. And, And it is our responsibility for at least our children and their children. Otherwise, we risk extinction. We have tribal minds, and we have modern capacities for destruction. I, I think it was Einstein who said that uh, the technology that is being used now, atomic technology, was like a razor blade in the hand of a three-year-old. Well, and now in the hands of immature world leaders. Yeah. Yeah. Who, who behave like three-year-olds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
you you also considered early on in your career um, going into journalism. You regret that, of course, that you didn't, because you could have been somebody. You, you, <laughs> don't isn't, I, I isn't that wanted one of your to be a journalist and a, and a writer, and my father, at the age of. 14, when I was on 14th birthday, he gave me books like Aerosmith and Of Human Bondage by Somerset Mom. All the characters in the books were doctors. So I ended up being a doctor. <laughs> all right. Still influenced, though. So um, I, all of what I've read in The Healing Self and your other work, um, your concept of, um, of love and the importance of love to health and, um, and wellness is always a, a principal thing. It reminded me of, we had uh, a war reporter in our writer's symposium several years ago, Chris Hedges, wrote a book called War is the Force That Gives Us Meaning. And he had a statement in there that said, all of the war reporting that he did created such uh, distress in his own life where he couldn't sleep wherever he was unless... He was sleeping in a home where the people who lived in that home loved one another. Then he could get a good night's rest. How do you explain that? Well, how do we define love? Love is um, not just a sentiment. Love is not just an emotion. It can be all those things. But love is the ultimate truth at the heart of creation, which is um, unity consciousness, which is that we are all differentiated from a single awareness. And differentiation is not separation. You know, your body organs are differentiated from one single uh, pluripotential stem cell. But they're not separate from each other, right? They're inseparable. Mm -hmm. You need each of them for each of them. And so as, as life forms, as sentient beings, we are differentiated aspects of what we could call pure awareness or, or consciousness. And a return to that wholeness is the journey that we call love. It's the beginning of the journey, it's the end of the journey. As you know, T.S. Eliot, we shall not cease from exploration. And the end of our exploration, exploring is to arrive where we started from uh, and know the place for the first time. So love is the beginning of the journey. Love is the journey and love is... The, the ultimate destination of the journey. It's the only truth. When I see myself in you, that's love. When I see myself in this object, that's beauty. And love and beauty and truth and goodness and evolution of consciousness are inseparable. Love is healing. So, so it's possible, though, when you're in a home where people love one another... Your body starts to return to self-regulation or homeostasis. Now we can show that, by the way. It's all measurable. But e even though you're not one of those people who loves each other, you're, you're just this guest? You can, you can sense that? It, it affects there you? There are no boundaries to consciousness. Every boundary is a mental construct. You know, you, you say that this is the boundary of my being. But this air is your breath. Those trees are your lungs. This earth is recycling as your body. 
the oceans and the rivers and waters are your circulation. You have a personal body, you have a universal body, and they're both equally yours. You can't exist without the other as well. In fact, your personal body is just a movement in a universal ecosystem of existence or being. Okay. <laughs> Let's keep going with love for just a minute. You say fall. The motivation even for heinous acts is love. It's a cry for love. Whoa, 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 whoa. When Seems people, like hate. Yeah, hate is a cry for love. It's a great uh, cry for attention, affection, in some form of appreciation and acceptance. All abusers have been abused at some point and mostly in childhood. Childhood is the most, most delicate, most fragile phase of our existence, which programs our consciousness for the rest of our life. If a child has been loved and accepted and given great affection and appreciation and caring, that child will never be a hateful child. So if... If there is, yeah, it's great. But if there is someone who has been abused, becomes a hateful person, is it possible for that person to heal himself or herself? If that person is given love, there's a possibility. That's why forgiveness is such an important aspect of our existence. You forgive because you want to heal, including yourself. You forgive not because you think the other person deserves forgiveness. You forgive because you deserve peace. And when you are at peace, you're able to love, and that love heals even the person that you forgive. So if I need to forgive you from something, for something, I'm really... Healing the, the, yourself. I'm healing myself if I forgive you. Correct. You'll be at peace. And that's the beginning of It's not of how healing. I learned it. Huh? That's not how I learned it. Well, that's not what Jesus Christ said, right? He said, love your enemies. Pray for those, yeah, yeah who persecute you, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Serve your enemy, mm-hmm. serve the other. That's the essence of Christianity. The Sermon on the Mount. It doesn't feel that way. Hmm? In this country, it doesn't feel that way. Well, because everything becomes a dogma, ideology, institution. But the essence of Christianity is nothing other than love. I mean, we just have to read one paragraph in the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount, and that's enough. Mahatma Gandhi used to carry that Sermon on the Mount in in his robes. He was frequently said, I love your Christ, but not necessarily the Christians. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a little, that stung a little when he said that. Uh, okay, so uh, I, uh, we've just got a few minutes left, but I'm struck by the boldness of a chapter in, in your book, uh, uh, the title of your chapter, The End of Suffering. That can't, you, you can't be serious. The end of suffering? The end of suffering is one sentence. Go beyond the hallucination of the separate self. The separate self does not exist. 
period. There's only relationship. So suffering is related to thinking of yourself as a separate being. Correct. There's no such thing. But if I have cancer and I'm in a lot of pain, I'm suffering. I, I can still sense that I'm part of you and part of all these people and part of everybody who's watching this, but it, wouldn't you st- say I'm still suffering? You're having a lot of pain. Pain is a biological condition, and it can cause a lot of suffering, but you can transcend the suffering. When you go to that level of existence, which is beyond subject-object split. And so you can be at peace, even in the midst of pain. And you can even actually overcome the illusion of death uh, when you go beyond the separate self. Because death and birth are human constructs for the arising and subsiding of experience, which is happening in being, which is not in space or time. Death, this, is, death is real, though. Death is real to ex- the experience of that which we call the body-mind. It's not real to that which was never born. The true self or awareness is not subject to birth or death because birth and death only happen to the experience that we as humans call the body-mind, which is an intermittent stream of sensations, images, feelings, thoughts, perceptions that are movements in being. That's why, at least in the Indian tradition, at the moment of cremation, and uh, even in the Bhagavad Gita, Lord Krishna, he talks about the true self as not being subject to birth and death. He says, water cannot wet it, wind cannot dry it, fire cannot burn it, weapons cannot shatter it. The true self is ancient, it's unborn, and it is not subject to death. The problem with you and everybody else usually is they think they were born just because your mother told you. (laughs) (laughs) Your true self is never born. It just is. It just is, and it's not in time. So not being in time, it is not subject to birth and death. Don't confuse yourself with your body or your mind, which are experiences, if you say, I'm my body-mind, which one are you talking about? You didn't have the same body-mind last... You know, I came to this facility two years ago. I brought the same suit, clothes, but not the same body. Mm. My body has a shorter shelf life than even my shoes. (laughs) (laughs) So, So... So let's wrap this up this way. I, I, I want you to respond to a line. You, you love poetry. You've been quoting Rumi and T.S. Eliot and, um, and some others. But I've got, I came across this line in a W.H. Auden uh, poem that says, Healing is not a science, but the intuitive art of wooing nature. It's beautiful. The intuitive art of wooing nature, which is your nature, as well. See, it's finding truth, goodness, beauty in your innermost being, which is being reflected as all this. Every moment of experience 
every moment of experience, every situation, every circumstance, every event, every relationship is a direct reflection of your conditioned self. Go beyond that and there's only love, there's only healing. Deepak Chopra, thank you for being with us today. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.